Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We are so glad that you are listening in today. As God's people, we are concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up on our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org. Please subscribe to always get the next podcast. God's ultimate promise to His people is salvation that leads to everlasting life in heaven with Him. This promise is the bedrock of Christian life. The hope we hold on to, the way that we live life, are necessarily shaped by this promise. Take away the promise of salvation, and you cripple the heart of the Christian faith. All through the Bible, we read again and again how we are to look forward to the fulfillment of the promise of heaven. One particularly beautiful image that God uses to describe the fulfillment of this promise is that of a banquet. God describes her entering into his eternity as joining into a great feast, a party, a celebration. There is joy, abundance, laughter, wonder, and there is healing at this feast. Over the next four weeks, we're going to be looking at four different texts from the Bible that describe God's great banquet. Each text teaches a little more. Sometimes the lesson is about how there's always room for you at God's table. Sometimes the text gives us a terrifying warning about ignoring God's party invitation. In the book of Revelation, God's great banquet is a victory party. Today we're going to read Isaiah 25, 6-9. God reveals His promises to us through His great banquet. God has a great and wonderful promise for His people. He's promised to restore us from sin to salvation, from struggle into lavishness, from shame into glory, and from death's prisoner to death defeated. Will you hear God's promises for you? Will you receive these promises? Will you join God at His great banquet? Let's read the text in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a rich feast of food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in Him, and He saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in Him. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. Wow, this beautiful text is God's promise to His people, to anyone who would follow Jesus as their Lord. We need to ask the question, what difference does a promise make? You know, promises are important. They can make all the difference in life. The ability to make and keep promises will have a direct effect on the quality of trust in a relationship. Merriam-Webster, the dictionary, defines the word promise like this. First, it says that a promise is a declaration that one will do or refrain from doing something specified. That is to say, it's a declaration that a person will or will not do a particular thing. It involves the ability to do, to carry out your words. Secondly, Webster says this, a promise is a legally binding declaration that gives the person to whom it is made the right to expect or to claim the performance or forbearance of a specified act. So if you have received a promise, you now have the ability to expect, to have expectations. You have the right to see the promise fulfilled. Be careful what you promise to others. If you cannot keep your word, you will break the bond of trust in your relationships. 
A kept promise can transform a person's life. When someone keeps their promise to you, you're being told that you are precious to them. And a promise kept can lift a person out of despair and into hope. So what difference does a promise make? It makes a lot of difference. It can make all the difference in the world. You know, the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife is built upon promise. Your relationship is not built on how perfect you are. You do not thrive in your marriage relationship based on how wonderful you are. We all have faults. We all have flaws. A marriage works when the promise of its vows are kept. If a a marriage involves no promise, no covenant, it would be a powerless relationship. It wouldn't be any different from any other relationship. You can only invest into your spouse as much as you could, could feel that you could risk if there is no promise. No marriage vow makes a relationship ordinary. But the promise of marriage makes all the difference. To promise to have and to hold, to keep the promise to your spouse. I'm yours no matter what. You know, that, that if we summarize the promises, it would sound kind of like I'm yours no matter what. I'm putting all I have into this relationship. You get my all in the best of times and the worst of times. You're the most important person in my life. If you keep those promises, it's going to work. The longer you keep that promise, the bigger the payoff is. I think sometimes we forget that. We want the reward right, right away, but in marriage, it gets better the longer you keep the promise. So as we'll see in the coming weeks, God's great banquet is not just a feast, but a wedding feast. And his promise is stronger than wedding vows. His promise makes all the difference to our eternity. But here's the challenge. Sometimes promises are broken. And broken promises hurt. And promises broken repeatedly are some of the most destructive forces in human life. Each time we experience a promise that is broken, we become a little more hesitant to trusting promises that are made. And then we have the challenge. How do we know we can trust God's promises? His promises are wonderful, but how do we know they're true? And so I want to offer a few thoughts for your consideration. And first is this, if you're weighing a promise... From God, but from anyone, really, you need to ask yourself, is the promise good? Growing up, I remember seeing a tremendous amount of infomercials on the television. Those long-form commercials promised an easier life through the purchase of better vegetable peelers or countertop grills or fitness machines that had the promise of perfect abs afterwards. You name it, and there is a gadget that promises to make your life better. And you know what? Most of that stuff never works. Maybe it works a little bit, or maybe it works for a time, but their promise doesn't last very long, if at all. And sometimes their promise is bad for you. Easy ice cream makers and countertop fryers. I don't know that those are necessarily things that are good. We might enjoy them, but they're not good for us. And I'm certain that some of those exercise gadgets that get advertised on TV cause more injury than they do fitness. So start by asking, is the promise good for you? Sometimes people will actually make a promise to you so that, they will, so that you will be tied to them. The promise is more of a trap than a blessing. Beware of anyone who tries to do that. But let's go back to Isaiah 25 and look at some of the promises of the text. We are promised a future in Isaiah 25. 
This banquet is great because it marks the end of everything gone wrong and inaugurates restored eternity with God. That's a good promise. And the promise is that those at the feast, the chosen people of God, will no longer have to live with sin, with brokenness, with struggle, with disappointment, or with embarrassment. So I want to take a moment and show you some of the dimensions of God's promise by looking at the actions of the Lord in this passage of Isaiah 25, the things that he does, and we begin to see that the promise is truly, truly good. One of the first actions uh, that we see the Lord do in this passage is that he prepares the feast. He's the one that makes it. He provides it. He's the preparer. And the feast is one of abundance and richness. I always try to avoid preaching a message that promise a message that promises easy life. You know, as though to say, "Oh, follow Jesus, and everything will be just fine." Well, follow Jesus, and we have the hope of eternity. We may have hardship here and now, but the end result is good. And the promise of God is that when we step into eternity, there will no longer be any struggle or shortage. He, His promise is that of plenty. That's why the feast is rich. It's a feast that's also available to all peoples. In Isaiah, God is speaking directly to the nation of Israel. He's challenging them to understand that the people of God will encompass more than just Israelites. God's chosen people will come from all peoples, all nations. The feast has a place for you if you would follow Jesus. That's part of its promise. And the feast is lavish. I think we need to understand this very clearly. It's not just a nice meal. It's not just a, a filling meal. It's not, it's not health food for eternity. It's lavish. In verse 6, there's an interweaving of two words. Shemanim, which could be understood as fat things, and shemarim, which means dregs, as the bottom of a goblet holding the dregs of, of drink. This banquet is... These two words represent that this banquet has the best of the best, the tastiest and richest of all foods and all drink, fat things and dregs. They are the best, the choicest, the ones that are most wanted, and it can be eaten freely and without consequence. What we're being told here in God preparing the feast is that God is giving you his best. The second action that happens in Isaiah 25 that I want to bring to your attention is that God, well, he prepares the feast, but then he destroys the shroud. This is verse 7. It describes the Lord as destroying the shroud that covers everyone. Actually, the word destroy in verse 7 is also the same word we we read in verse 8, but it appears in verse 8 as swallow. So destroy and swallow in verses 7 and 8 are the same word. So you could read that God is swallowing the shroud that covers all the people. I believe this shroud has two meanings. I think it's death. And so the, the, the weight of death that burdens all of us, and this would be echoed in verse 8 and thinking that God is swallowing the shroud of death. But I think there's more going on here, and I think you'll agree. Yes, God is swallowing death, the shroud of death. But I think we can also read this shroud to be the barrier between us and God because sin has created a barrier. Ephesians 4.18 describes this barrier uh, not quite as a veil, but as a darkening. And it says they are darkened in their understanding and separated from life, the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Sin creates a barrier between people and God. In the book of Exodus, there is a marvelous scene. Israel 
has been at Mount Sinai. The mountain's been covered in cloud. They can't see up the mountain to see God, but they know that he's there. And they make their covenant with God. And after they make covenant and blood is sprinkled, Moses takes the elders of Israel up. I'm not sure where they go up to, if they go up on the mountain or up somewhere else, but it says they go up. And when they go up, they see God. The text tells us that God, that they see God and they eat and they drink. There's no veil between them, no cloud between them and God, and they feast. Let me read the text. It's Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. It says, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet were something like pavement made of lapis lazuli, as bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. In 2 Corinthians Paul writes of a veil that keeps us from seeing and understanding God. And for the believer, he says, the veil is removed. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 through 18 tells us about it. I want to read you the text. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. For for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read, but it is not it has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses um, is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God promises that we will have unveiled faces one day. No longer will there be a barrier between us and God. And I believe this is part of what is spoken of in Isaiah when God is described as swallowing the veil that covers all the people. The separation between us and God will be removed. The third action of God is that he swallows death. In our culture, sees death as the ultimate failure. The worst in our culture that can happen is death. And this is understandable, for we are meant to enjoy life. We were not made for death, but death waits for us all. And for the people of God, death is not victorious. It is conquered. We God is victorious. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is not does not have a hold on the Christian. The Lord replaces death with life. He swallows up death. The fourth dimension, the action of God's promise in this passage is that he wipes away tears. You know, tears can be good, but here, when we read this text, I think we can all envision tears of grief that follow death, tears of remorse, tears of heartbreak, tears of betrayal and disappointment and tears of pain. There is no place for these tears at God's great banquet. He has removed the source of these tears, and he fills you with joy and wholeness. Revelation 21, 3-4 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. You could read that as saying there's no veil between us. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Do you know what I hear in this text? 
I hear Isaiah 25. No veil separates us, death is defeated, and tears have no place. We'll be coming back to Revelation chapter 19 in the final work of this week of this series on the Great Banquet, and we'll read a victory feast. The fifth dimension, the fifth action, is that God removes his people's disgrace. This is the final action of God in Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. Disgrace is gone. There is no more just living with it, just getting along, just, just trying to endure all the suffering. But the promise is deeper. You see, Israel struggles at the hands of this world because they follow God. And the same is true for the Christian. Until Jesus returns, this world will always try to embarrass the Christian out of their faith. Isaiah promises that this dishonor will end and one day it will be removed. Isaiah provides a tremendous promise for the people of God. The promise is good. I want to turn quickly for a moment here and look at two more ideas for discerning the promises of God. You know, we must discern that the promise is good, but then we need to ask a couple more questions. And the second question is this, does the promise maker have the power to keep their promises? Promises are wonderful, but only if the maker can follow through. I can promise to give you a million dollars. The sad truth is, is I cannot do it. I do not possess a million dollars. I can make that promise day after day, and I will never be able to deliver. Well, I don't think I'll ever be able to deliver. I might mean well, and I may want to bless you, but the million dollars is not mine to give. It's not in my ability. Be careful to never promise what is beyond your ability to make good upon. And parents, I urge you to be doubly careful about this. Sometimes we think something is within our ability to give, to promise, but we can't promise a sunny day at the beach or that an emergency won't come up. Promises reveal our limitations. They remind us that we are imperfect, that we have faults, that we come up short. God's promises reveal the wonder of his character and his nature. He has no limitation. He is the creator of all things. What can limit him? There's nothing that's beyond his power. He has the power to deliver on his promises. So that's good. We know that he can deliver. So one last point. You may discern that the promise is good. You may be able to discern that the one who is making the promise can deliver. But then comes the last question that we must decide upon. Is the promise maker trustworthy? And this is where so many people struggle to believe in God. They are unsure if the promises will come true. How do we know that eternity really waits for us? At some point, we've got to have faith, believing without seeing. Sometimes the longer we wait, the harder it is to trust and to have that faith. And we think, will the promise ever be completed? But we're told that the Lord keeps his promises. I mean, God even addresses in Second Peter that, yes, he does take his time. Second Peter 3 9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So while we may say, Lord, you've taken so long, are you really going to make good? He says, I'm waiting for the last one. You know, another way we can discern whether God is trustworthy or not is to look at his track record. And his track record is good. The Bible is God's track record. If you read it through and through, you'll find over and over his promises fulfilled. 
Joshua 21.45 is one of those verses where Israel has settled into the promised land, and it tells us not one of all of of the Lord's good promises to Israel's failed. Everyone was fulfilled. You know, and fellow Christians are also God's track record. Their testimonies of how God has worked in their lives make good on His promises. I know that my own life, the way that Jesus has worked in me, I hope that that would be a testimony to the trustworthiness of God. But beyond God's track record, we can also see the price that he has paid to keep the promises. Please, do not trust in cheap promises. If anybody makes you a promise that is very inexpensive or has no cost to them, be very wary. God's promises are costly. And the highest cost? Well, he gave his son Jesus for us. Romans 5.8 says this, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God was willing to pay the price of his own son to keep his promises for us. So God's promises are trustworthy. We are called to respond with a trusting faith. Now, you might be wondering, how do I receive the promises of God? What do I do to become a Christian? Well, 1 John 1.9 says this, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If you would receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Savior you can be a Christian. So, and after we receive... Isaiah 25 tells us to rejoice, that we're to be a rejoicing people. We have the ability to rejoice even in the midst of pain and grief and persecution. There is no hardship that can overcome the promises of God. It may be difficult in a moment. I don't for one bit doubt that our hardships can be overwhelming. But no hardship can overcome the promise of God. We need to realize this and stand on this. He has a feast prepared for us. He destroys the veil. He swallows death. He wipes our tears away. And he removes every disgrace. Will you receive the promise of Isaiah 25? Will you follow Jesus? Will you rejoice in the Lord and be glad of his salvation? Let us pray. Lord, help us to have a big vision of your future promise. Big enough so that we will not give up under the hardships of life. Big enough that we will not despair in our disappointment big enough that we would expect better from our world and not settle for the small promises of this world. Lord, let us have a picture of your promises big enough that we would serve your kingdom, bringing heaven down here on earth. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go with Jesus.